Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On today's podcast, our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, speaks to Dr. Johnny Marshall, who is president of the National Association of Primary Care, or NAPC. Those of you who've been around in primary care in England for a while may remember that the NAPC was the organisation behind the primary care home model, which is basically what current primary care networks are based on. Luke speaks to Dr Marshall about how he thinks primary care networks are getting on and whether the vision of the primary care home model is being realised on a national level. Today I'm joined by Dr Johnny Marshall, who is president of the National Association of Primary Care. Dr Marshall continues to have an active role in the world of primary care despite retiring from general practice last October. In a long and successful career that spanned 40 years, Dr Marshall spent 25 years as a GP partner in Wendover, Buckinghamshire, and he's held a number of leadership roles, including periods at the NHS Confederation and NHS Clinical Commissioners. And he was also uh, one of the champions of the primary care home model. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Today, we're asking the question, have PCNs lost their way? And this comes amid reports recently, which have highlighted, I guess, numerous issues with the structures that have been pointed out to us by grassroots GPs, GP leaders, and also think tanks now. Um, But before we get into primary care networks uh, or PCNs, it's probably important that we talk a little bit about primary care homes known as PCHs, which were the precursor to PCNs. Um, So, Johnny, would would you be able to summarise the the model and the aims of um, primary care homes? Yeah, sure. So so the aim of primary care homes was to improve the, the health of the population, by which we mean improving the whole population's health and well-being and reducing health inequality and achieving that by better understanding the health needs of local people uh, and responding them to them accordingly. So you get the right sort of care and support services in place. The definition of primary care within that is based on the the functional definition that's described by the World Health Organization rather than the the contractual one perhaps we use in the NHS. So it's thinking about primary care as when it's the first point of contact, um, when it's providing person-centered, holistic approach, providing comprehensive support around the majority of, of individuals' needs, and then coordinating uh, onward referral unnecessary when when those needs can't be met within that primary care function. Uh, And therefore, as well as general practice, pharmacy, dentistry, optometry, it also includes the voluntary sector, community services, social care, local government, and even even the community itself. So that's that's the breadth of primary care that we're using in the primary care home. Uh, And and it's not an organisational structure in the way primary care networks is. It's more of a way of doing things that can improve the sort of the care and support offer that we have. So, so yes, it's based on a population of about uh, 50,000 um, people. And, and that's really to make sure that the size of the team working together is small enough to know each other, uh, to be able to manage risk with each other, trust each other. Uh, but it's big enough to be sustainable. So something magic, less about the number of, of patients, but more about the size of the team. Um, It it focuses on continuing the development of the multidisciplinary team uh, in in primary care, which I've seen through my 30 years in in general practice. And how successful was was that model? I know it started in 2014, didn't it? Yeah, so so we've got some really good examples of of success. So uh, in Thanet, they had uh, an older population um, in, in quite deprived areas and they were concerned they weren't getting 
the care and support that they needed. So, so it took a bit of time to understand um, what those needs were. They developed a, a multi-agency uh, approach to supporting uh, frail older people um, and, and resulted in reducing non-elective admissions significantly. So that's obviously great for those older people um, because you don't want to be going into hospital decompensating and losing your independence. But, but it also saves an estimated sort of £300,000 in the process. So really aligning uh, that sort of partnership response. And so that's a really good example. Uh, and then there's another good example from uh, St. Austell, uh, where they introduced social prescribers uh, and had quite a significant impact on weight loss uh, and improving people's sense of health and well-being. And they also introduced um, pharmacists. So again, they'd be quite early on in this process in terms of undertaking medication reviews. And you, and you can see how some of those things are then drawn through into primary care networks. And in the knowledge that PCNs were being nationally introduced from 2019, what, what were the major lessons from um, the PCH model? What, what worked well for practices and what maybe didn't work so well? I, th- I think what worked well for practices uh, are probably just some of those things that just work well for professionals in, in general. So, so that sense of the practices feeling it was, it was very much their common purpose. They had ownership of the of the problem they were trying to solve um, and therefore the whole team potentially was involved in, in bringing about positive change so something really important I think uh, about common purpose uh, the, the second element was really then I guess that sort of sense of self-determination no one was telling them they had to do this no one was doing it for them they were I guess at the leading edge doing this on their own um, and therefore, they were able to, to make the changes themselves. They were able to develop the new models. They were able to skill up their workforce, attract new staff, and make sure they had the right, the right skill mix. Um, and, and the third area is that they also provided, I guess, support to, to staff to work at the, the top of their licenses. Social prescribers were doing work that traditionally would have done by GPs, but actually it's probably better done by social prescribers and and ensuring that they'd invested in in the workforce they had got people um, skilled up feeling confident in what they're doing feeling supported uh, i guess is a really important part uh, of having a sort of a, a positive engaged workforce so, so so i think those are things that all sort of went well i think that the difficulty sometimes was when you're looking at a population health and well-being need that might cut across health into social care uh, and actually it's much more important that the social care factor is in place rather than the health care factor when there wasn't alignment with local partners uh, around doing this then it became very difficult to move away from that medical model to one that was more comprehensive and and, and it, it takes time to develop those sorts of relationships i guess so some areas fortunately they had them and were able to make good progress but in others, when those relationships are more strained, more difficult, I think that often got in the way of adopting this sort of plural primary care function, as I was talking about it, multi-agency approach. So switching our attention to PCNs, as I mentioned, they were introduced in July 2019 and they roughly followed the PCH blueprint the major selling point at, at the time of their introduction was that they would sort of reduce pressure on GP teams and um, add tens of thousands of new recruits into the profession. How would you describe the impact of the model so far? 
I think it would be fair to say that the primary care networks adopted some of the principles from the primary care home uh, in terms of the size, thinking about the multidisciplinary team. But I'm sure you'll notice from my description at the beginning, um, they weren't really fully equipped um, to be able to, to take this forward and, and to deliver some of the benefits that, that I've talked about. Um, so, so I think the impact to some extent has, has been a bit mixed. Um, it, it's been a little bit predictable uh, because it hasn't had all of the elements. Uh, and then I guess that creates a sort of sense of, of, of disappointment. But, but, but we need to remember that when, when we're developing these sort of new models, that, that it just takes 10 years, almost whatever model you're developing, to sort of to reach maturity. Um, so all of the all of the frustrations and the difficulties that people are experiencing at the moment are are, are to some extent um, perhaps almost to be expected. You know, they they would have been predicted because it takes ten years to embed anything, and we know the NHS is not necessarily always particularly good at allowing things to to embed. And we've been working with with Calderdale, for example, for for a, for a couple of years now in terms of our our place based program that's supporting them introducing uh, population health improvement across their, their, their PCNs. Um, and, and it's really just taken two years before they've even started to sort of show a difference. Yeah. So it's been a mixed impact. Um, and and where, where teams have really had a much better understanding and support and being enabled to do the population health improvement, they've made a much, much bigger difference. As we know, there are issues, but um, I just wanted to, before we moved on, just ask you where the NAPC um, has seen examples of PCN actually doing really good work, because we know, as you say, it's they've had variable success. Yeah, so so I mentioned Calderdale just a moment ago. So um, NAPC has been working uh, alongside Calderdale to help them embed this sort of population health improvement. So that was about how do you take a whole population, improve its, its health and well-being, and reduce health, health inequality. Um, so we've been working with them as they've been, been embedding this into the sort of cultures, I guess, within, within the practices, within, within the PCNs as a, as a route to improving uh, health and well-being and then reducing health inequality in their communities. Um, and they, they've been rolling out techniques to surgeries in every PCN. So really coming back to some of those problems that I was alluding to, helping people to understand how they can identify the sort of the real challenges that they're facing, maybe keeping them awake at night even, uh, and giving them the tools to start to, to unpack what's going on here. Um, and they, they've delivered benefits um, for their homeless communities, um, for people with diabetes uh, and, and, for, and for frailty. And, and, and they did that by, by sitting down um, with, with the clinical teams and really understanding what they thought their, the concerns were, what they thought the real challenges were um, within the communities that, that, that they served. So they really had a sense of sort of common purpose and, and working to, to achieve what was important to, to the local workforce, um, as well as making sure they then spent time talking to the various different aspects of, of people within their population that, that had these underlying conditions. And as, as you sort of mentioned earlier, there are 
are some frustrations clearly with primary care networks. I know a few that we've reported on have sort of been top-down management um, and restrictive recruitment rules and also the sense that they've added to work, not reduced it. But I just wanted to ask, in your opinion, what have you seen to be the major roadblocks that have been encountered by practices and primary care staff working in PCNs and maybe those leading them? There's a fundamental weakness when when you when you're trying to adopt uh, a person-centered approach, which is which is exactly what Cordelay are trying to do. It's part of the NHS long-term plan. People talk about it time and time again. We want this person-centered approach. Um, and then you and then you try and enable that through a national contract, which often has a one-size-fits-all feel to it. So, so, so I think that that is a major bump. If, if you've got lots of varying health needs within the country and a contract that doesn't have the flexibility to, to enable that, you're going to crash into, well, I don't need one of those. I don't need one of those. I need one of these. I've got the wrong skill set. So, so I think that that is definitely a major sort of frustration. And then the, the ARS roles have been, were initially a perhaps even more prescriptive um, and, and not really based on what the community needed, the health and well-being needs of that community, the skills they needed. So, 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 so that, that's one really key factor. I, I think the second is um, it's, just, it's just difficult currently to recruit and, and retain people because of uh, underinvestment and undeveloped, unsupported workforce um, that, that's just been struggling uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and we've heard examples of different parts of the country where they they could uh, re- recruit a pharmacist ostensibly um, through an ARS contract, but there weren't any pharmacists available to recruit. So, so you suddenly find, well, that, that's a great idea, but because they're, they're, we don't have the workforce to be able to take into those roles, we, we can't develop it. And that, and that really reflects a lack of, of sort of workforce investment, sustainability planning in primary care over, over a number of years. So I think... Now, that's a longer term thing, but it has made it much more difficult then to, to, to recruit new people in, into, into general practice, primary care, PCNs. Um, and, and, and the third thing is, look, whenever, whenever you're trying to, to affect change, um, it's really difficult if you're doing that when you've got increasing workload pressures uh, resulting in higher levels of risk that you're having to manage, causing increasing personal stress, concerns about recruitment. It feels like it's going to get increasingly difficult just to keep the existing services going. To have the headspace, the energy to be able to do something different is really, really tough. And I think we need to, we really need to understand that that's not that was pre-COVID, not just during COVID, um, but following the COVID pandemic, that's even more heightened, where we have a huge increase in in health and well-being need, which which happens after a pandemic. Uh, and a workforce that's that's genuinely really struggling to be able to meet that need to, to do that and to affect change on top that that's a really hard thing to do so i think all of those things are probably the major sort of bumps on this journey at the moment playing devil's advocate here a little bit do you think that the problems we're seeing were inevitable because of the way that that the pcn model was made into a national scheme and obviously comes with specifications and i, I think that's the bit that that was predictable, it would have been the the element that NAPC was representing needed to be flexible to reflect the needs of the population. So, so I guess in, in that sense, I think that that that's a yes. Now there are there are some really important elements of a national contract that you absolutely wouldn't want to vary from place to place. Yep. So it's not that a national contract is a bad thing. 
a national contract for things that are the same everywhere is a good thing. But but a, but a, a national contract with a limited sort of flexibility and solutions when there's huge variability um, between the you know the, the needs of a of a population in, in healthy wealthy Buckinghamshire versus uh, a deprived poor area in the in the in the middle of um, Birmingham, uh, then then you you absolutely have to have that flexibility, and it's really difficult for a national contract to give you that level of flexibility. So somehow. Uh, I guess that, that sort of suggests what might need to be different in the future. We need something that allows for that local flexibility and that local support around the workforce that makes it sustainable because it's unlikely the needs of that population are suddenly going to become hugely different. Um, so it will be something that needs to be sustainable for many years to come. And just going back to primary care homes for a minute, obviously we've spoken about some of the success stories there and and some of these would have become primary care networks um how how have they fared since they've made the change from primary care home to pcn um i, I think some of them uh have have found the pcn sort of constraints of the pcn contractual requirements have made it difficult for them to to do the primary care home initiatives under PCNs, and they've almost been running the two things in parallel. So, so there's almost been a contractual PCN thing that I have to do, uh, and and I will I will do that because it, it's you know let's let's be honest about it. It's a, attracting investment, much needed investment uh, into into practices, into PCNs, into those sort of primary care services. Um, and there isn't really another way of doing that. So, so, so I guess they're being very they're being very pragmatic in that. Well, I have to do this because that attracts resources. But what I really want to do is this. Uh, and 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 call today we're talking about almost like running the two things uh, in parallel, which which is which is which is their way around the problem, I guess. Uh, and it would be great if if those two things felt like you weren't having to run them in parallel, but they became much more closely entwined. So we mentioned the additional roles reimbursement scheme. What's been your take on that? I think I think there are probably some some contractual issues, and, and as, as I said, the increased flexibility, the increased uh, choices are are a, definitely a good thing. Um, I think there's something a little bit about really understanding um, the skill sets of individual professionals um, and and how you incorporate them into the needs of the population. So, so for example, um, I think the sort of the, the use of um, pharmacists within primary care homes um, might have started uh, around, well, answering patient queries on medication, um, perhaps you know, doing some, some, some of the research around uh, what, what, what some of the implications might have been around certain drugs and, and, and safety warnings and things like that. I certainly know within within our practice, it was it was almost sort of a sense of that's what we saw pharmacists as doing. Um, and, and therefore that's sort of the roles that they developed. But it was it was sort of based on on the professional role and not on the needs of the population. Um, and I guess it's as you start to develop that relationship and you better understand uh, what some of the new professional roles are able to do and some of the skill set that you start to think about, well, actually how could we change this? How could we how could we have the pharmacist actually being part of the sort of medication um, review rather than just answering the queries? So it's definitely a sense in which if you come back to this understanding the needs, thinking about the right care and support and developing the skills, uh, 
it's, it's a skills-based approach from a primary care home perspective rather than a roles-based. So I think there's still room for those, those additional roles to move from being role-based to being skill-based and thinking about how, you, how that sort of skill set develops. Whilst accepting it, it just takes time. Taking all of this into account, the key question that I was hoping we'd answer today during the podcast um, is, have PCNs lost their way? I, 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 don't, I don't think it's that PCNs have lost their way. Yeah, And if you think about it in the 10-year journey, uh, I, I think it's more that they've not been fully enabled uh, to, to understand uh, how you do this sort of population health improvement. It's different from, from what we've done before. It's much more proactive. Uh, and less reactive, you know, uh, there's a need for reactive um, healthcare, of course there is, uh, but actually there's, there's an, also a need for some, a greater sort of proactive approach. So, so, so they've not really been able to, um, to, 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 to understand that and therefore to start to plan and build new ways of providing that proactive care and support for their communities so that they improve the broader population health and well-being and reduce health health inequality. So I think it's, 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 it's a sense that they haven't really had time to find their way uh, and they haven't always had the support, whether it's contractual, whether it's workforce, whether it's training to be able to do that. Um, and, and I think it is it does sort of raise a question really for the for NHS England more broadly, that, that, that if, if there is a commitment um, to, on the NHS to, to truly do this in a person-centred way, um, then, then, then the way you do that is you have to do that from the one-to-one interactions between individual people, carers, families, and proactive, prepared professional teams. You, you have to do this from, from individuals in the community to, to groups of people that, stay up, that share the same sort of uh, health and support needs to, to bigger groups. You have to do it upwards. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure that that's really truly understood uh, across the NHS more broadly, which results in a more of a sort of a top-down, bigger population starting place rather than starting with those one-to-one interventions. And I think PCNs, practices, primary care, they know that. They know that's the way you do it. Uh, no one's lost that. They all know that. What they need is the support to enable them to, to have the time, the space, removing some of that pressure of workload so they can explore how they do that locally and how they master it um, over a 10-year period. Another point I think is interesting and important to raise is just with the incoming integrated care systems later in the year, how do you see PCNs working within these structures? I mean, primary care networks, uh, if, if we are to have sort of successful integrated care systems, um, are absolutely critical to that. Uh, and I think in the way that, that I've hopefully been describing through this podcast, there are some, some, some key elements that integrated systems need to ensure are built into their primary care network. So, so that sense of being the right size, um, it, it, in, in my experience, grouping in bigger and bigger sizes um, very rarely seems to deliver the, the, the stated benefits um, uh, around many of the either economics or, or, or the management um, of, of, of primary care networks. So, um, and when you're basing your, your premise on the fact that this success of this team is based on these one-to-one interactions and interventions and to be able to, 
to be swift and innovative, you, you have to have a highly functioning, effective team. So, so, so the numbers game has to be really smartly applied to where bigger is definitely better. Otherwise, potentially, it can make team working much more difficult. But equally, you, you can't do everything at a local level. People need to develop the relationships across working um, with, other, with other practices, with other partners um, to be able to deliver sort of the benefits for them at, at a local individual level that, that primary care networks potentially could deliver if they adopted this approach. And, and I think it's an integrated care system. You need to understand you are the PCNs. It's not, these two things uh, are, are not separate things. You, you have no chance of being successful as an integrated care system if you do not have successful, thriving PCNs. I just don't see it. Looking forward um, to the rest of the the five year contract, what what would you say are the cr- crucial things that need to happen to ensure that either PCNs are more successful or maybe less frustrating than they are to some now? I, I think there needs to be a clear acknowledgement of the unprecedented demands on primary care at present. And remembering I'm talking about primary care as that functional definition. It's not just general practice, pharmacy, optometry, dentistry. It's the whole lot. But, but there has to be an acknowledgement of the unprecedented demands on primary care at present and investment to address these. The second thing I think is we need to have a broader understanding across the NHS. When we talk about a long-term plan that's moving to improve population health, we need to understand how you do it and how you do it effectively. Um, We've been working with NHS England uh, around the the CARE programme, which is a a webinar for general practice nurses, skilling them up in how do you start to take these principles of population health and apply them to the people that you see on a day-to-day basis and recognise that you could do better for them. I think the other element is is one around um, public engagement in this whole conversation, Uh, whether it's an engagement with an individual um, group of people like homeless people to understand what their needs are, whether it's a conversation at a local level across a a county where there might be implications for how services are are reorganized, or whether it's a national debate um, about the challenges that we face and and, and how this, this is sort of adopting a different approach around population health that's more proactive, less reactive. You're not being shortchanged when you're seeing a different professional. This is all part of improving your, your experience. I think as I've, I've also sort of referred to sense of sort of secure uh, recurring investment in, in that wider primary care family, um, social care, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think probably the, the, the final area is, is thinking about measures of success. Uh, some of the measures of success that we use uh, for general practice services, for primary care more widely, are not always uh, attuned to this population health improvement approach. They tend to be a bit more transactional, a bit more biomedical. And I think we really need to think carefully um, about getting the right measures of success and make sure they are aligned across the NHS. For sure, there are lots of useful suggestions there. Hopefully, um, some of them are taken up in the future. Um, thanks so much for coming on the pod. It's been it's been great talking to you. You're welcome. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Luke, and thanks so much to Dr. Johnny Marshall for taking the time to speak with him this week. 
We're back next week with our fortnightly news review. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice by visiting our website at gponline.com. See you next week.